Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Welcome to Sound Practice, the American Association for Physician Leadership's podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. To celebrate the milestone of our 100th podcast, we have chosen highlights from 10 of the most popular downloaded podcasts. Following are excerpts chosen by AAPL editorial staff, plus additional commentary from the American Association for Physician Leadership's CEO, Dr. Peter Angood. Peter will put podcast episodes in context for physician leaders. I encourage you to re-listen to these 10 original Sound Practice podcast episodes, plus subscribe to our channel. The links to the top 10 episodes are included in our show notes. Starting off, we interviewed Dr. Anthony Fauci for an episode called Physician Leadership in the Time of COVID-19. In this episode, Dr. Peter Angood interviewed Dr. Anthony Fauci on the nuances of physician leadership during a pandemic. As the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Fauci, who has been a physician leader himself and in the forefront of medicine since the 1980s, explained how he navigated and balanced clinical issues and political situations through seven presidential administrations. And he gave advice for those aspiring to physician leadership. Let's take a listen. So we're curious about your own leadership journey at, at some level. And as, as much as you care to share, as a now globally recognized uh, physician leader, uh, quite influential over the course of your career, what, in your opinion, if you care to share, are sort of the two or three um, experiences for you that kind of confirmed your leadership and recognizing for yourself that you could create a larger scale of influence uh, based on those experiences. And I asked this type of question because so many of uh, the folks that interface with us are just always fascinated by those stories of uh, how others got to where they got to. Well, thank you for that question, Peter. It, it's, a, it's a little bit of a complicated issue, but I think I could simplify it by some fundamental principles. And if you And I found, particularly when you're in a position like I've been in, where I had the opportunity and the privilege to advise now seven presidents about areas of right. domestic and global health, right from the beginning when I uh, advised President Reagan, when I, in the very early years of the HIV AIDS mm -hmm. pandemic, which was a very sensitive and difficult situation, particularly because yeah. the White House at the time did not really feel it important to come out and use the bully pulpit of the White House to get people aware of the danger of this emerging uh, outbreak, particularly at the time among young gay men. Um, I had a principle that I've always had is always, always stick by the data and the evidence and facts and be consistent in what you do. Um, the lesson I think that says it all is when I went in for the first time to walk into the White House, into the West Wing, because President Reagan in the early 1980s asked me 
to come in and talk a little bit about HIV. Remember, he wasn't talking about HIV very much at all at the time. Right. That a very right. wise person who became a very good friend of mine, who had actually been in the Nixon White House for about five or six years, he gave me um, a, a advice, as it were, that I hope and I think I would have thought about this anyway, even if he didn't, but he really confirmed it. He said, whenever you walk into the White House to brief the president or people at the higher level, tell yourself that this may be the last time I'm ever going to do this. Because if you go into it feeling you want to get asked back because it's such a you know, haughty and, and, and heady experience to go into the White House, you may wind up hesitant to tell the president something that he might not want to hear, namely a truth, but a truth that's inconvenient for him. So you've always got to stick by the facts, stick by the truth, and don't ever veer from that, even if it means you're not going to get asked back again. And I've lived by that, and I've gotten asked back for seven presidents, so it seems to have worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, if you really want to maintain that that leadership capability, you've got to be consistent. You've got to be based fundamentally on fact, and you've got to really live by example. You know, and I I think the example of what you do, your fairness, your consistency is what people look for when they look for leaders. They don't like inconsistencies. You've got to articulate what your goals are. I mean, you know, as the director of the Institute, one of the things I pride myself as the director of NIAID is that there is no doubt in anybody's mind what my goals are, what my vision is. If you want to be a leader, you can't have a leader where people don't even know where the leader is going. Like, what direction is this person going? Right. You've really got to be very articulate in saying, this is the institution I'm the leader of. This is where we want to go. These are the principles upon which we're going to operate. So we've all got to be pulling together to get to the common goal. That's what people really want in a leader. They don't want vagueness. They don't want inconsistencies. Tony Fauci has been in the forefront of work regarding COVID-19. This was a welcome opportunity to hear from him regarding his own physician leadership journey. This was not the usual type of interview Dr. Fauci conducts. His take on the tactical side of physician competencies, complete with specific instructions on what to do and not to do when a leadership position is sage advice for any physician. As we say here at AAPL, all physicians are leaders at some level, and this is what society expects of us. Dr. Fauci's advice to physician leaders on the concepts of humility and courage was an intimate and useful perspective from a man with years of experience in physician leadership. Gosh, seven presidents of advising? Pretty impressive overall. Number two, leadership lessons for physicians from Ted Lasso. Apple TV launched Ted Lasso in the fall of 2020. The series focused on an American football coach played by Jason Sudeikis, who is hired to coach an English soccer team. But Ted Lasso is less about sports and more about leadership. In this episode of Sound Practice, I talked with Gary Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is president of Associated Eye Care 
from Stillwater, Minnesota. He wrote a LinkedIn article, Leadership Lessons from Season One of Ted Lasso. Dr. Schwartz founded 10 crucial leadership lessons woven into the Ted Lasso series. This episode serves as proof that sound practice can be hip, socially relevant, and educational all at the same time. We're going to be talking about Ted Lasso. For those unfamiliar, could you give me a plot summary? Sure. So Ted Lasso was a, a show that season one aired on uh, Apple TV a couple of years ago. Um, season two airs uh this Friday, so we're recording this prior to the dropping of season two, but I think the show will air after season two has dropped. Um, it's uh, Ted Lasso is an American college-level football coach who, um, for reasons that that uh, are kind of plot devices, he ends up getting uh, taking a job in England and becoming a Premier League soccer coach. Um, in England, and it just kind of follows his story of a kind of a fish out of water story of someone who goes from college level to the highest professional level and goes from uh, American football to European football or soccer. Kind of for something to do this winter while we were all kind of shut in, um, I'd watched the show Ted Lasso and had made some connections that, you know, there's some really interesting leadership lessons in here. So I just kind of wrote this fun, started off as just kind of a fun, you know, one or two page throwaway thing that turned out to be a seven or eight page thing. And I just, I posted it on my LinkedIn page just for fun. Um, and then uh, I, when I joined the AAPL, I posted it there as well. And it just kind of got some notice. So here we are talking about it. Um, so the, the question of, of culture. Um, so there's 10 leadership lessons that I've culled from the series and it's in this article that I wrote. And one of them is, you know, culture is, is central to everything. And the, the way we see culture play out in the show is, is fundamentally in the locker room and on the practice field and how the, how the players treat one another and how the players treat um, this character, Nathan, who's the kit man, who's kind of a low level, like the guy who does the laundry and make sure the lockers are stocked up and things like that. Um, and just episode one, um, the Ted Lasso character played by Jason Sudeikis, he, he can see in the locker room that there's trouble. There's different camps. There's um, um, the leader of the team, the team captain, who's the formal leader of the team, this character named Roy Kent. He really kind of sits back and, and is complicit in bad behavior because he doesn't step in to stop it. There's a uh, an unofficial leader, this kind of star player, this younger player named Jamie Tart, who um, he's kind of an informal leader and and he's kind of a bully and he has a group of followers who are bullies. And um, what Ted Lasso just determines is this is a culture that needs improvement and I'm going to work to improve this culture. Lesson number two that you that you came up with is you do not have to know everything. I have to say that is reassuring to me. Doctor. <laughs> uh, what can you tell us about lesson number two? So um, as far as the Ted Lasso character is concerned, so he he comes to England from America and he really he seems to really make very little effort to learn the sport of soccer and to learn uh, English culture in general. So, I mean, there's this kind of repeated joke where he's about to cross the street 
in England and he looks to the left, which is the way you would look in the United States. And then he's about to step off the curb and somebody puts their arm out and stops him because the cars come from the right and not the left in England. Um, he hates tea. There's a kind of another running joke where every time he drinks tea, he in very colorful Jake, Jason Sudeikis way describes what tea tastes like and just cannot believe that the English people really drink this. He kind of thinks it's a joke that the English are playing on him. Um, so he kind of comes into it not knowing much about the sport of soccer, but what does he know? He knows how to coach. He knows how to get the best from his players. He knows how to develop young men. He knows how to create a good culture in the locker room. So that's, that's what he does know. And that carries. So the analogy for your AAPL audience is if you are a physician, yeah, you've got to know everything to be a good physician. But if you're a physician leader, things kind of change, right? So let's look at me. I'm, a, I'm an ophthalmologist, and I am the president of a 15-doctor, 160-employee group. That's what I know. That's my space, right? But let's say I get, I get courted away. Let's say some healthcare system or some major hospital says, hey, Gary, you know what? Instead of being the president of a small ophthalmology group, mid-sized ophthalmology group, how would you like to be the, the CMO of our hospital? Or how would you like to be in charge of ambulatory services of our hospital? So many physicians who spend their time as physicians thinking they have to know everything, a job like that would cause analysis paralysis, right? Because you can't learn everything for the new job. So you have to be comfortable with this idea that I don't have to know everything. What carries over, right? Uh, I, I understand how a clinical practice works. I understand ophthalmology, but ENT is probably similar in a lot of ways. Primary care medicine is probably similar in a lot of ways. The similarities probably outweigh the differences. I know how to lead. I've led a, a company of 150 people, so I should be able to lead a department or I should be able to lead a medical staff. So I don't need to know everything about the hospital or everything about all the subspecialties that will be under me in my new position, but enough from my current position should carry over that I should succeed. So that's the analogy for the physician leader is it's not like being a physician. I wouldn't be a good ear, nose, and throat doctor. I don't have the education for that, but I might be a good CMO, or I might be a good head of clinical services. For what it's worth, you've got my vote. <laughs> I'm not a uh, <laughs> Le Lesson four is one of my favorites. Call people by their name. And it seems to me that uh, this applies in a wide variety of, uh, of arenas. But in healthcare, maybe this is kind of part of the, the art of medicine over the science of medicine. So it's, um, yeah, there's some, there's some, there's a, there's a touchy feelingness toward using people's names. It's, it's definitely the art of building a practice, right? So what do I mean by that? So when I was still a resident at the University of Minnesota, we used to have this lecture from this kind of older sage ophthalmologist guy, Mac McCannell, who would tell us like some how to be in practice. You know, you've been a resident, you've been a student, how do you be in practice? And one of the things he told us was, this was in the age of paper charts, right? If a patient, if you learn something about a patient that's interesting, write it on the chart cover. So next time you see them a year later, 
when you really don't remember them from the 15 minutes of last year, you see this note you jotted down and then you bring it up. So I practice and trained in Minnesota, but I'm from Boston. So any Boston connection at all, if a patient tells me their kid was in Boston, their daughter goes to school in Boston, their son did military service in Boston, I always jot that down. And in our electronic health record, we have a place for that because that's I set that up. And I look and it works. And I'll I'll say to them, Oh, is your daughter still in Boston? And they'll say, Oh my God, Dr. Schwartz, you always remember that. Yeah, she still is. You get out to see her at all. And it, and if I bump into them in the grocery store, I won't remember that. But if it's in the chart, I remember that. Today's medical graduates are superbly trained to practice state-of-the-art clinical medicine. However, only in rare instances are they trained to self-manage their career as physician leaders and as physician executives. The Apple TV series, Ted Lasso, took the world by storm. And in many ways, it was the perfect antidote to a world that seemed upside down because of the pandemic, political differences, and overall world strife. Not only is it a show about kindness, but it also covers many basic tenets of leadership and emotional intelligence. We hope you enjoy the full podcast and the original article is linked in the podcast's show notes. Another item to point out here is to remind us of the power and influence that can be harnessed for good by social media. If it wasn't for Dr. Schwartz posting his article on LinkedIn, we likely would not have known about his work. In fact, I didn't even know about the program at that time. From one of our AAPL staff members reading Dr. Schwartz's post, we invited him to post in our community forum for members that resulted in an article to our Physician Leadership Journal, and then to an invitation to be a guest on our Sound Practice podcast. This all started with Dr. Schwartz's post that went viral. Good for social media and us. Number three, Treating the Difficult Patient by Joan Nadorf. Physicians enter their professions with the highest hopes and ideals for compassionate and efficient patient care. Along the way, however, problems arise in their interactions with difficult patients. Addressing a problem that is rarely discussed in the patient care context, I interviewed Dr. Joan Nador about her new book, Changing How We Think About Difficult Patients, a Guide for Physicians and Healthcare Professionals. I was hoping that maybe um, you could tell me how providers choose thoughts so that difficult patients don't seem so difficult. Maybe walk me through a scenario of, uh, of a difficult patient and how you would approach that, that situation. So I, I think that um, there are a lot, one of the people, we, people who we would see a lot was someone who was kind of very angry and oppositional, uh, a patient with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, usually these people um, were smokers for a, a lot of their life. Uh, in their, uh, when they were young, people like my father, he was uh, a service member in the World War II, they gave cigarettes to the soldiers. And this is just something right. that they did. They turned a whole generation into smokers uh, before we knew how harmful that was. And, um, Instead of blaming them for that, uh, and just when we see those people, we need to ask better questions and be more, more curious. Could I be wrong about 
what I'm thinking about them. This is a question that we have to ask ourselves when we're dealing with someone, a difficult patient. Um, can I give this person the benefit of the doubt? Uh, is this angry person somebody's father or mother? Those things are true. I mean, there's a person who may be uh, an angry man with COPD, but it's somebody's father. And you know, if my father came into the emergency department, even though he might be kind of grumpy, I'd like everybody to give him the benefit of the doubt and give him um, the best care. And I think another question we could ask or way to consider to, to change our thoughts and think more intentionally about these people is, is their, some of their behavior a symptom of their disease? And the answer is often yes. Someone who's very grumpy, kind of anger is a part of this a chronic disease. They're thinking, why me? Why did this happen to me? Uh, I was always doing what I was supposed to be doing. And they're kind of grumpy about uh, or angry about having to be on oxygen all the time. It feels terrible. I mean, can you even imagine how awful it must feel not to be able to catch your breath? Um, so if you think about someone more in those terms, I, I think that you will have more compassion for them and you will not view them as difficult. Now you may find, I like to use the word challenging, and I think, are you challenged by them? Yes, you are, but you're up to the challenge. You know, you can find a way to um, bridge the gap with that person and uh, come up with a solution to get better results, better treatment, get them feeling better. The book is changing how we think about difficult patients. Uh, this is certainly a book that will make you a better physician. And I think make your life better in the practice of medicine. It's an important book, and I certainly recommend it to, to all that's listening. Well, we certainly all had difficult patients, and I remember them, almost all of them, actually. So it was a pleasure to come across Dr. Nadar's book. She references the 1978 landmark article from the New England Journal of Medicine by James Groves with the title, Taking Care of the Hateful Patient. Dr. Groves described four general categories of hateful patients, and he called them dependent clingers, entitled demanders, manipulative help rejectors, and self-destructive deniers. I'd have to say I've seen all of those at some point. Dr. Nadoff, in this podcast and in her book, dives in deeply and encourages physicians and healthcare providers to really examine the thought distortions, implicit biases, if you will, that we all have. These are complex emotions involving the doctor-patient relationship. And Dr. Nadarf introduces simple, actionable tools that every physician, nurse, care provider can use to help change their mindset. Exacerbated by the perception of demanding and unappreciative patients, and especially during a global pandemic, I encourage our physician leaders to listen to this entire podcast and also to read her book. Probably this book should likely become a part of medical school curriculum as we all deal with learning about implicit bias, but more importantly, how to manage it. Number four, Dr. Shannon Prince on racial justice in healthcare. The pandemic has cast new light upon healthcare disparities. Vaccine hesitancy and vaccine availability in minority communities has led to further discussions of mother and infant mortality and other care disparities. While some may debate the origins of these disparities, few would argue that they are not disturbing. 
In this episode of Sound Practice, I was able to speak with Shannon Prince, PhD, JD, and author of the new book, Tactics for Racial Justice, Building an Anti-Racist Organization and Community. We started by discussing how one could become an anti-racist physician. You've used this term anti-racist physician. Can you define that for our, our purposes of our discussion today? Sure. So an anti-racist physician is a doctor who recognizes that race can have a negative impact on one's life and on one's health and consciously works to mitigate those effects. So how does, how does one become an anti-racist physician? So the most important thing is to recognize that colorblindness can literally kill. So for example, it can be tempting to think of a non-white body as just a white body with more melanin. And that's actually not the case. The way systemic racism manifests itself results in all sorts of disparities, such as access to healthy food, access to clean air, whether or not we are vulnerable to stressors such as police harassment. People of different ethnic backgrounds age differently, they sicken differently. So if you're a physician, you need to be aware that you have to be on the watch for chronic disease in a black patient a decade earlier than you need to for a white patient. You need to recognize that a black woman is at a greater risk for maternal mortality than a white woman is. And then you also have to respect the fact that race not only determines how we get sick, it determines how we heal. So although uh, you should never assume that a patient of color is poor, it is important to recognize that in America, we have a wealth gap. White families have exponentially more wealth than families of color. The median white family has 22 times more wealth than the median Latino family. That white family has 41 times more wealth than the median Black family. And the average white family has 10 times the net worth of a non-white family. So why does that matter for medicine? If you're going to tell a patient, for your health, you need to eat healthy. Well, that may not take into account the fact that if you're a community, if you're someone from a community of color who um, is more likely to be poor, you may live in a food desert. You may not have access to healthy food. If you tell a non-white person to exercise, you have to keep in mind that because of poverty, they may not live in a neighborhood where there are sidewalks that are safe to walk or jog on. They may live in an apartment that's too cramped to do cardio in. They may live in a neighborhood that's so polluted that if you go outside and try and exercise, you're going to trigger an asthma attack. And so you have to Think about how to work through those issues with your patients. So the first step to being an anti-racist physician is not being color blind. It's seeing color and then treating the effects of color. Physicians occasionally encounter explicit racism. How should physicians respond to acts of explicit racism? So the first thing to keep in mind is that the time to decide how to respond to an act of explicit racism is not when it happens. It's not when the patient is there in the hospital bed 
or sitting on the table and saying, well, I don't want a doctor who is Asian or Hispanic or Black or Native American, and then everyone trying to decide in the moment what happens. You need to come up for a plan for what you'll do if the situation is an emergency, which of course is going to be to stabilize the patient, but also what to do if the situation is not an emergency. You can make a decision as a practice that if you have a family practice or you're a primary care physician and a patient is racist, you just won't treat that patient. But you need to look at all sorts of situations. What are you going to do if a child comes in with a racist parent? Make that plan before that incident happens. What are you going to do if a colleague is called a slur? Even if it's an emergency situation and in the moment, everyone is focusing on stabilizing that patient, after the incident occurs, don't pretend like nothing happened. Debrief about it, comfort that person. Understand how to be an active bystander so that if you're in a non-emergency situation and a patient says something racist about a colleague, you understand how to handle it. For example, you address the comment and not the patient. You say, you know, Mr. Doe, what you said was racist, as opposed to Mr. Doe, you are racist. You're very firm about the fact that you don't tolerate that behavior in your practice. And then you're just mindful of what your colleagues deal with, of the fact that when a doctor of color walks in the room in his or her scrubs, that doctor may be assumed to be an orderly. You need to know that your colleagues are dealing with that stress. You need to know how to support them in it. So just make a plan for how to deal with explicit racism and be clear that if it's not an emergency situation, you won't tolerate it, you will address it, and then you will check in with your colleague after the fact. Dr. Shannon Prince holds a PhD in African and African-American studies from Harvard University. She also received a law degree from Yale and is the author of Tactics for Racial Justice, Building an Anti-Racist Organization and Community. This was a compelling interview, and Mike and Dr. Prince discussed how race and ethnic background factors into patient care, both from the provider perspective and the patient's perspective. In the podcast, Dr. Prince provides concrete suggestions. For example, how to make a plan to handle explicit expressions of racism directed to members of the healthcare team. Turns out preparation is the key rather than handling a situation on the fly when it happens and it will happen. She also encourages physician leaders to do checkups on themselves. For example, giving a CME offering on caring for multicultural populations and gathering colleagues and sharing what was learned. You can invite doctor friends to your practice as an example, and then hold casual training. You can create an anti-racist physician reading group where everybody reads a journal article about a health issue affecting a population of color or ethnic diversity, such as sickle cell or cystic fibrosis. And then you can circle up and discuss the findings. You don't have to be the head of a department to initiate these efforts. Anyone can do it, even starting those practices in medical school. To combat all sorts of racism in medicine, we can all play a productive part by making decisions and deliberately taking small steps. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is critically important for healthcare and we must all take our own efforts, regardless of what our own ethnic or racial backgrounds are. Number five, Dr. Peter Hotez on COVID-19. In the early part of the pandemic, when vaccines were starting to roll out 
we interviewed Dr. Peter Hotez as a bonus sound practice episode. We learned some things, especially when he described the targeting of minority communities with anti-vaccine messaging and the role of social media and other organizations in that effort. This intentional spreading of misinformation directed to certain ethnic groups, well, it frankly floored us. Dr. Peter Hotez, MD, PhD, is a professor of pediatrics and molecular virology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he is also co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development and endowed chair in tropical pediatrics. He is a vaccine scientist who has led to the development of vaccines to prevent and treat neglected tropical diseases and coronavirus infections. You wrote an important piece this past week about the coming crisis among the black, brown, and indigenous uh, citizens of our, our country. Uh, the biggest concern is vaccine rollout numbers are showing disparities when it comes to, to race. Could you comment on the really perfect storm of vaccine hesitancy uh, coupled with vaccine unavailability? What outreach would you suggest uh, yeah, I mean, I, I am very worried about black and brown communities for a few reasons. One, they often uh, tend to be linked to low-income neighborhoods where people are essential workers. By that, I mean they're not home via Zoom and Skype. They are um, they are working in business, family-owned businesses or on construction sites or in the service industry, and therefore are exposed at a higher rate. They often have multi, live in multi-generational homes. So you're a 20-year-old kid on a construction site, you're then coming home to your parents and your grandparents, and they're getting infected. And uh, then there's a high rate of comorbidities, such as hypertension and diabetes. So all of these things are combining together. And the fact that we are seem to be vaccinating people of color at lower rates than, than, than Caucasian populations, that's also worrisome. So for instance, the Kaiser family Foundation recently did a study, for instance, in Mississippi, which where the African-American population accounts for 38%, yet about only 18% have been vaccinated. So there is that you know, two to one disp disparity in vaccinating. So addressing that's got to be a big priority as well. How, how do you think it's best to address that? I think there's a few things going on. One, making it more accessible. I think opening up vaccination hubs in low-income neighborhoods, that's gotta be a priority. And so for instance, here in Houston, our mayor, Sylvester Turner has made that commitment. He made an announcement over the last weekend. So I think that's the kinds of things we have to think about doing. I think the other is addressing the pretty high rates of vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing, especially in the black community. Um, we did a study, um, uh, was led by a colleague of mine, uh, Tim Callahan, who's a social scientist at Texas A&M and found that uh, black populations, African-American groups are the second highest vaccine hesitant group. And the Kaiser Family Foundation did a similar study with different methods, came to the same conclusion. So addressing also the vaccine hesitancy issue in the, in the black community is going to be important as well. And the hesitancy in the the, the black community, are you seeing that across the country equally or is it greater or lesser in different geographic areas? 
I don't think we know. We just have those two or three two or three studies. Uh, seems to be uh, across the country, and a lot of it is around uh, fears about the safety of the vaccine. That it was, they feel it was rushed. Even though I like to point out, we've had our research and development program for a decade around coronavirus vaccines, so there's nothing really rushed about it. But there's been a lot of mismessaging. The other thing that we we have found is that. Um, very tragically, the African-American population has been targeted by anti-vaccine groups specifically. So this has been a new battlefront from the anti-vaccine groups targeting specific groups. They did this with the Somali immigrant community in 2017, convinced them that vaccines cause autism, drove down vaccination coverage, and then caused the measles epidemic. Then they did again with the Orthodox Jewish community in 2018, 2019 and did it in a very inflammatory way, parading around with yellow Jewish stars with the word vax and the yellow Jewish star that made it look like Hebrew letters. I mean, they're about as offensive as you could get. And now they're doing this with the African-American community, comparing vaccines to the COVID vaccines to the Tuskegee experiments and experimentation on, on, on people in the, in the black community that ended in 1972. So I'm spending a lot of time now countering all of that disinformation campaign on uh, whenever, at least uh, on a daily or other daily basis, I'm going on African-American talk radio shows and podcasts to try to reach those groups and explain why um, what we've seen now in the black and brown communities is about 35% of the deaths are under the age of 65. So that's the other piece to this. You know, when we talk about COVID-19 deaths, the narrative that's out there, it's uh, an illness, uh, severe illness in people over the age of 65. That's not true in, in Black, Brown, and Native, Native American communities, so 30 to 35% under that age. So, so what we're doing is we're losing a generation of moms and dads and brothers and sisters, uh, and, and that's really devastating. So I'm trying to do whatever I can to dispel the misinformation that's out there. Um, it sounds truly monstrous. Is this is, I assume, going on via social media? And has there been any assistance from those platforms in dealing with this deliberate misinformation campaign? Yeah, the anti-vaccine groups dominate the internet and uh, and social media. I mean, you go to, even go to the Amazon.com site and type in books up at the top as everyone has done, and press return, and then you'll get the help dieting on the menu at the left you click on that again the vaccination it's all fake anti-vaccine covid conspiracy books so you know how you counter that is is tough and i've been dealing with this for years because i've been going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the anti-vaccine groups i have a daughter with autism and i wrote a book a few years back called vaccines did not cause rachel's autism to, because that's one of their central tenets and going into the detailed information showing there's no link between MMR, dimerosol, or any of those things in autism and how autism begins in early fetal brain development uh, as, a, as a physician scientist. And this is tough because they are so dominant, they are so uh, ubiquitous on, on the internet, on Facebook. And, you know, it's not a lot of groups. There's about maybe 10, 12 major anti-vaccine groups who are perpetrating this. And it wouldn't be that hard to take it down, but so far no one's got the appetite to do it. Throughout the pandemic, Dr. Peter Hotez has been a tireless figure in the media, appearing in outlets on all sides of the political debate, 
He's participated in the media on topics such as the origins of the pandemic, COVID-19 vaccine development and rollout, and the science of infectious disease. We are pleased that he could spend some time with us on our AAPL podcast. Although misinformation is a problem for physicians on the front lines, especially primary care and emergency physicians, Dr. Hotez provides a clear-eyed look at the positive and trusted role physicians exercise in this and every sector of the healthcare industry. In this interview, Hotez provides talking points for physician leaders on understanding their role during the pandemic, the importance of recognizing the enormous pressures that physicians and healthcare workers continue to face, emotional, mental, physical, and how physician executives and physician leaders can help. Clearly, this has been a period of uh, unprecedented duress, and therefore, a lot of the comments that Hotez makes are very relevant and still are. Number six, mindfulness and healthcare, a discussion with Lori Cameron. It is a word that we see on covers of magazines at the grocery checkout, but what exactly is mindfulness practice or mindfulness leadership? I had the opportunity to interview Lori Cameron for sound practice. Cameron is a mindful leadership expert and is the National Geographic author of the best-selling book, the Mindful Day, practical ways to find focus, calm, and joy from morning to evening. A student of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh for over 25 years, Lori integrates emotional intelligence, positive psychology, mindfulness, compassion, and neuroscience into practical strategies. Here, she describes starting in a mindful practice for physicians and healthcare workers. So mindfulness really involves three points of a triangle. If you were envisioning a triangle, you would you could think of intention on one point, attention on the other point, and attitude on the third. So it's about attention, but it's the way we're paying attention. We're paying attention with this a beginner's mind, a curiosity, an open-minded receptivity, which is very different than the way many of us are trained and educated and conditioned in the West to pay attention. We usually pay attention with more of a judgmental mind. If we pay attention to our mind, we find that we're often judging, you know, up to 20 times an hour. We mm-hmm. judge ourselves. We judge those we interact with. We judge situations. We judge the weather. You know, we make things as we make things right or we make things wrong. So mindfulness is the ability to pay attention to what's happening when it's happening. That's step one. It's just to know what's going on with me right now. I'm stressed out. I just watched a patient die in the hallway. I've got to walk into this this next room where I know someone is right at the brink of, of life and death. And I'm noticing a tsunami of emotion in my body. That's a mindful moment to pause and notice what the direct experience is. So we can take that second pause, just that breath and, and bring attention to the breath, calm and regulate the body, connect to how you want to show up as you walk in that next patient room and then be able to do so. So we can build those competencies with practice. Mindfulness is a, um, uh, an, an evidence-based 
best practice method of replenishing and renewing. So a few minutes of mindful breathing where we drop below the choppy waters and turbulence of the life that they're in. I love to use the metaphor of, of, of an ocean that these physicians and, and, and nurses and frontline workers are in just very turbulent, choppy, churning waters. And they, they stay in that all day, hours and hours and hours. And, and then they might come right home and not have anything left, right? It might be uh, a martini and, you know, a Netflix binge before they collapse in the bed, right? Because there's just no energy left. And what we know is that we can learn very short, I call them micro practices, very small, short, very effective practices that they weave throughout their day so that they're not adding a mindfulness class or hour or two hours at the end of an already exhausting day. They're weaving and integrating very strategic mind-body moves to not only shift their state in a moment, which is has has impacts on their own well-being as well as patient outcomes. So it's it, the ROI is is quite significant. But um, we're weaving micro practices, mindfulness practices into the day that they already have, and that is is really the, the heartbeat of the work I do. When National Geographic asked me to write the book, The Mindful Day. They wanted a, a science back book on mindfulness. Uh, their audience isn't known for, you know, incense and beads, right? Their audience in National Geographic are explorers. And we like to think of this book as, as supporting inner explorers, you know, what's happening on the inside. But they wanted a book for people that weren't going to go to the Himalayas or don't have time to add a weekly Monday night class, but that want to find how to integrate the benefits of mindfulness, which are cognitive, psychological, physical, emotional, they imp it impacts relationships, you know, well-being, to, to get those benefits in the existing life we already lead. We are doing, one, we're doing consistent practice daily to build up muscles or skills or new mindsets so the neuro, neuroscientist Richard Davidson out of the Center for Healthy Minds at University, University of Wisconsin says um, that with repetition, with consistent practice, we are wittingly shaping our mind. So he says, we are shaping our minds every day, wittingly or unwittingly. I love that phrase he uses. And we now know what these, what the, you know, the science is in, the research is in that if I go to this mental gym every day consistently, if I get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, walk the dog, and then sit in my living room chair and exercise my attention muscle, if I run and, you know, if I do a mindful breathing practice, I'm strengthening the circuitry between the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, and the amygdala so that I am better able to respond instead of react when stress hits. So one, I'm going to the gym to build up my skills and create that almost that muscle memory. But to your second part, yes, I am shifting how I'm responding to stress when it happens. 
And what we're doing here is we're interrupting conditioning. We all have habituated patterns in how we react. And some of it is from our biology, our evolutionary biology as human beings. We've got a flight, flight or freeze response. We get triggered, we react. And part of it is our conditioning. We've modeled and learned from parents, school teachers, basketball coaches, and so on. So what we're doing with mindfulness in the moment, on the floor, in the hallway, on the OR, you know, wherever we might be, is we are noticing that reaction rising and then interrupting our habituated response in the moment and using a new response, a new skill, which might be pausing and breathing. It might be the stop practice, stopping, taking a breath, observing what's happening in the body, using inquiry, looking at the thoughts, the thoughts in the mind. What am I believing about this other doctor that's assisting or this patient or whatever might be going on? And then P is proceeding with a calm, clear, intentional next action. So that's the stop practice. So we're doing both. We're, we're building up our muscles and new way of being every day with discipline. And then we're, um, we're integrating these practices at point of need when they happen. One of the most difficult tasks for physicians who seek life, lifestyle balance is being able to recognize their own lack of balance. Many physicians earlier in the training deny their emotional and physical needs as a means of surviving. We are clearly taught directly and indirectly to suck it up, to work until the work is done, to be tough emotionally and physically. Remember that old maxim, sleeping is a weakness? At the same time, physicians are likely tired of the constant drumbeat of strategies to combat burnout, eat well, getting enough sleep, yoga, other suggestions of self-care. Well, physicians are already amongst the most resilient of individuals around, so no wonder they get a little bit tired of that. We expect our physicians to be resilient, but we also expect them to work within a system that may not always help them. So we know that healthcare has systemic issues of what it expects from its workers, just like every industry, and work there continues and must continue. Hey, but back to the interview with Laurie Cameron. Why would National Geographic publish Laurie Cameron's book, A Mindful Day? What I learned from this interview is that National Geographic, the company that specializes in explorers and adventurers, wanted a book that concentrates on internal explorations. And that is what Cameron has delivered. What I liked about this interview is that Cameron understands the world of the physician and healthcare worker. She talks about the mindfulness as something that physicians can practice, incorporating it into one's day by the use of what she calls little micro practices, just breathing a certain way before entering a patient's room, settling the mind before one has to deliver bad news to a family, techniques to use when giving tough feedback to a colleague who did something negligent in the OR or somewhere else. Yes, micro practices need to be learned but it is not a time commitment that would stand in the way for a physician wanting to embrace the work. Paying attention on purpose, in the present, with curiosity, openness, and compassion, self-compassion, it all begins with a physician having a receptivity to the concept of mindfulness. And mindfulness is demonstrating through functional MRIs that it clearly changes our brain operational work for the better. 
give this Lori Cameron podcast a listen to see if these techniques may help you as you get started on a mindfulness practice. Number seven, medical misinformation, tech platforms, and the threat to our public health. With Kara Swisher, FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf recently announced his concern about how social media magnifies and disseminates false information about science. Covering this topic, we were delighted to interview tech columnist, thought leader, and podcast host, Kara Swisher. Swisher has been on the tech scene since the early 90s. She has written for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. She started the All Things Digital Conference with Walt Mossberger, also from the Wall Street Journal, back in 2003. She has a new podcast with Scott Galloway, The Pivot Podcast. This engaging episode is a tutorial for physicians on tech landscape, the lack of accountability for tech companies, and an overview of Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, which impacts physician practices in ways that you don't think of daily in this country. Kara, welcome to Sound Practice. Thanks very much. We're very, very pleased to, to have you. And as you know, Sound Practice is a podcast to educate physicians on issues that have an impact on their patient care and their uh, positions as physician leaders. Certainly platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Google have substantial control over information our fellow Americans uh, see. And I know you've been vocal about the lack of regulation surrounding tech companies and the content that they are producing. And of course, what comes to mind is COVID-19 misinformation, mm -hmm. right? We know, the, we know the playbook. It's COVID isn't dangerous. The vaccine is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And you can't trust doctors or, or scientists. How, how did we end up here? Well, I think it's been part of a long stretch of, of the ability of these companies to act as platforms and not as media companies, which they are in a lot of ways, and get the protections of platforms, which come from a law that was passed many, many years ago called Section 230. And so it's allowed to be a situation where anyone can post anything, and that's not, there, that's not inherently wrong for people to be able to do that, but that it floods the system. And then the companies that are doing these platforms have no responsibility to put out accurate information. And so these in many countries and in, across our country, these become de facto news organizations is how people got, get their information. Emergency room physicians are certainly now on the front lines uh, for the anti-vax rhetoric coming from unvaccinated uh, patients. And pediatricians have been dealing with this for, for many years. Mm -hmm. The anti-vax movement certainly is not new. And people no. somehow forget that we've had outbreaks of measles and Oregon and Orange County, California, all tied back to the anti-vax uh, messaging. So it really appears that social media has has turbocharged all all of this. Do you would you agree with that statement? Oh yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that's the thing. It's just they've gotten turbocharged by the internet and the ability to use these tools. Like any of these malevolent players have been able to do it. They're they're following a playbook and they're getting better at it. You know, they pop up here, they pop up there. Um, it's hard to regulate them. Look, I, I have to say, Facebook and others have really tried hard. Um, it's just that uh, you know they didn't. They did. They waited too long. These people have gotten this. You know, it, it can really. 
on one hand, it's great for people to protest whatever they feel like protesting. On the other, it creates the ability to, to put false information out. Like, I don't mind if people have an argument. Here's my argument. And this is what it is. And I'm sure doctors hate it. Like, here's, you know, I'm sure they hate it. And you can only do so much with, with people. But there is some, uh, such a thing called the public good and public health. Um, and, and we all make agreements by not going through a stop sign or not using red lights or wearing pants, although that's changed, I think, during the, the pandemic. I know everyone's at home, but now we need to go back to wearing pants or whatever it happens to be. We Please. make social contracts with people and with other people in our society. And if it's going to be an anything goes kind of thing, you know, it, we're really, it's really problematic. There's lots of studies of that. It's, it always degenerates into chaos. And, you know, I'm sure doctors are so already sick of Dr. Google, right? When people come in and say, let me just tell you what I read on the internet, right? I call it Dr. Google. My brother's <laughs> doctor. He's like, oh, Dr. Google again, um, which must be irritating. At the same time, maybe physicians should think about being more open with their, you know, I've had lots of health issues and over the years and it's always like we'll tell you we'll tell you you know it's a, it's an attitude of of not a lot of like we're the experts we're the priests and i think that has to change that has changed obviously which is a good thing it's just the question of when, when it comes to really bad information that you can't push back against that's really the problem so give me some ideas how we can involve physicians to make them part of the conversation or to get lawmakers uh, to make changes here to get some degree of accountability because it really is mm -hmm. a matter of life and death. It is, indeed. Um, you know, look, start with the premise you're never going to get to a perfect society like that. You're always going to have people that think, you know, going way back, like, drink the vinegar, that'll solve cancer, whatever it is, whatever it happens to be. Like, you know, my grandmother had 90 different solutions to all kinds of illnesses, you know, migraines. She had something with oil and a knife under the bed. So, okay, you know, fine, whatever. Um but uh, but I think one is the 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 strengthening of science as a trusted institution. Um, that one of the problems is is it's been put out like science can't make mistakes. It obviously makes mistakes, um, and that's very obvious to a lot of people. Um, and so, how do you then get get people into the mode that this is a group of people trying to help you and try to trying to figure it out? And sometimes we're wrong, but you know, we're off, we're all most always right on, on things and we're caring for them. Another is the, that, that these platforms can't be the only place for this information that you had, that the government has to do a better job of disseminating information far and wide about, about things. Um, we have to also live in a full information environment. And so doctors have to realize um, that I think, I think someone in the government told me the most effective way for, to convince people to get a vaccination is the doctor themselves, a, a, a close relationship with with their patients and really taking the time uh, for to really talk to um, to talk to your patients. I mean, I think that's the, the hand that is the best way to do it, from what I understand from most doctors. Um, I think um, lobbying Congress to like get to 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 break up some of these companies or to get, or, or to create more innovation. So there's a lot more ways to disseminate information that isn't just subject to one or two companies. Um, you know, Google has 97% of search, right? Are they a utility? Like that's, yeah, kind of, you know, Facebook has some huge amount of, of that, of that. So, and then there's, of course, public pressure, you know, Facebook, not Facebook, Amazon was recently stopped selling a, a 
a, a chemical that was soup people use for suicide um, uh, after a lot of pressure, a lot of public pressure and media pressure. That's another way to do it. Tell your stories. Tell the stories of what can happen if we don't do things like this. Um, and and then you know talk a lot uh, talk a lot about the idea that there should be more choices for people to get their information and it shouldn't be a single place. And when, when, if it is a single place, these people have to do a better job moderating what's happening there. Kara Swisher provided a no-nonsense commentary about technology platforms acting as publishers and news outlets, and she described in detail the nuances of Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, which provides companies to have no responsibility to present information that is factual. In stating the obvious, misinformation about science is a significant public health threat. With tech platforms currently not being accountable, social media has turbocharged anti-science messaging, putting physicians on the front lines with patients. Swisher discussed the problem with how platforms such as Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, Reddit, and others proliferate the disinformation and what physicians and healthcare professionals can help to do to stem the false information. Number eight, is it a good idea or a good business opportunity? A discussion with entrepreneur and venture capital founder, Dr. Louise Pereiras. Unfortunately, good ideas are not enough to advance healthcare. Business skills, a team operating with clarity, and capital investments are all needed. And the stakes for venture capital in healthcare sector and for the general population could not be higher. Louise Pereiras, MD, PhD, is the founding partner of two venture capital funds, Health Equity and InterVivo Ventures. These funds focus on early stage investments in the healthcare sector. Dr. Pereiras, has led the investment strategy and transaction process for both of these funds. He is based in Barcelona, Spain, and I had the opportunity to discuss with him what makes a good business opportunity and what makes a good business pitch. This is an insider's opinion from the perspective of someone who awards venture capital in the healthcare sector. You won't want to miss this. Why are we here trying to promoting entrepreneurship, for example, or in my case, venture capital investments in biotech in healthcare? That's because people die that should rather not, or people live difficult lives that should rather not. And I can't imagine a most interesting thing to do for a physician to try and solve without, of course, uh, I mean, you don't need to leave your MD status or not seeing patients. Of course not. I mean, you can lead uh, both things at the same time. I've seen uh, this done many, many times in the past. Yeah. I find that many of my physician clients initially focus on protection of intellectual property, copyrights, trademarks, well before thinking about competition and in, in marketing uh, plans. Do you see this as well? Uh, to be honest, I don't believe much in, I mean, once you get your idea in front of you, uh, it's not as much as, I mean, about the business plan that, that you have, at least in medicine or in biotech, but about the problem you're trying to solve and the regulatory roadmap that you have in front of you and the IP strategies that you want to deploy to better protect your idea. 
and all this roadmap until it gets to the patient, right? It starts as an idea, but then it gets to the patients more quickly than people think sometimes, right? And um, let me tell you something that I think could be of value. I mean, for example, when just to judge how good or bad is an idea, let me tell you that uh, when I present some ideas to, to my team here, for example, if everybody agrees with me that this is a good idea, I am too late already because you need, I mean, in a very good idea, an idea that excels is disruptive and many people won't understand it, right? There's a saying also in my field, if it works, it is already obsolete because people are working on the next version. You know, so um, uh, I don't care too much about marketing plans or these kind of things. What I care is about the idea and what is the roadmap, the plan to make it happen? Because let me be a bit aggressive here, if I may, Mike. I mean, Please. the value of an idea is zero. Believe me, nothing, rien, niente. I don't know more languages to express that. If you take it, to the marketplace, then it can be worth a lot of both money and social return on investment as well. But the value of an idea is in its execution. So, so I'm worried about the execution of the idea, how the team is to make it happen. What are their skills? What are their motivations, their internal drive? And, and above all, will this be a part of the future of medicine? You know, because there are many, many ideas that are great, but maybe there are some other approaches to that very same problem that would be more interesting for the future. So when choosing your idea, you need to be very careful that it's not only a good idea, but also it is in a field that it's going to project itself into the future and become a part of medicine in the future. If you want an example, I don't know, uh, a gene therapy versus a small molecule treatment for a rare disease, probably the gene therapy is going to solve much better the, the disease, right? So uh, doing, I mean, solving a problem is not enough. That, that's maybe the central message that I wanted to convey with this part of the interview. It's not about solving a problem. It's about solving a problem better than the other approaches that you have around. What is the value of my idea? Well, for many, that's the big question. Many physicians have this question when they consider an invention, a new device, a new procedure, or a new healthcare business or innovation. And Dr. Pereiras gives us his opinion here in the Straight Talking podcast. He encourages questions like these. What is the problem you are trying to solve? How do you get that idea ultimately to benefit the patients? Our experience with leadership training at AAPL has shown the need for physicians to have master's equivalent skills, some type of advanced education beyond our medical training. And Dr. Pereiras, in his podcast with Mike, discusses this in no uncertain terms. In business pitches and in entrepreneurship activity, competencies such as negotiations, communications, team building are crucial skills and are what partners and those individuals financing innovation are looking for. Hey, AAPL has courses in all of those things, and I'm sure many of you have already taken them. Deeply involved in the innovation ecosystem, Dr. Pereiras is a member and advisor to many healthcare innovation organizations, has served at the board of directors of many life sciences companies, and is the author of 
innovation and entrepreneurship in the healthcare sector, from idea to funding to launch. Dr. Pereiras is also quick to say that physicians and healthcare leaders can think successfully about adding a business dimension to their perspective while they continue to pursue their careers, dreams, goals, and aspirations. It just takes focus and clarifying the value of that big idea. Number nine, an insider's perspective on end of life and palliative care with Jennifer O'Brien. Jennifer O'Brien has spent her career as an administrator and an executive working in healthcare and managing medical practices. Life took an unexpected and awful turn when her husband, a palliative care physician, was himself diagnosed with a terminal illness. She documented her journey through art and ultimately via a book, The Hospice Doctor's Widow. Jennifer O'Brien's unique perspective on healthcare, end of life experiences, and caregiving framed this episode of Sound Practice. Jennifer O'Brien offers sage advice to caregivers, and she also provides guidance for physician leaders on how they can be examples in their own families and communities. In our healthcare system have run into this problem where there's such a space uh, between say a specialty like oncology, hematology and palliative care, and then ultimately hospice that 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 there's this like sort of there's this this gap and and so when in in oncology and hematology it's palliative care is either misunderstood as to what it is and or seen as some sort of giving up and i remember um when bob was there was a it was a real struggle You've been with this doctor, he or she has helped you through some very difficult times. And now I think this is the biggest issue. And, and now when it's time to say, I, I don't wanna try any more chemotherapies. This, you know, this is, I, I'm, I wanna just, I wanna be comfortable. I wanna live the rest of my life. There's this heart wrenching goodbye that has to happen between this oncologist who has taken you through really difficult stuff, right? And, and some oncologists are part of the process, but most kind of have this whole, well, once you say you don't want any more treatment, you can't see me anymore. Mm. And it, it's, yeah. it's heart-wrenching because you have developed a real relationship with your primary specialist and it, it's, you know, it's a me or them kind of thing. And, and so it makes what's already painful because you're dying and you're losing, you know, as a caregiver, you're losing your loved one. And now you're having to have this like breakup, you know? Uh, that's very, that's very interesting. And we're, we're approaching the end of, of our time uh, in this, this interview, but I think you're, you're hitting at something and I really want to, to give you an opportunity to make recommendations to, to the sound practice audience of healthcare executives and physician leaders on how to improve palliative care and uh, the process for caregivers. And I think you were, you were getting there and I'd like for you to wrap up with, with those thoughts. Well, I think there are, you know, there are a number of ways to do it, both formally and in and informally. The um, the CAPC, 
which is the Center for the Advancement of Palliative Care, has some great programs um, on leadership and, and how to develop a palliative care program. And I, I wouldn't, there's so many good ones that, you know, part of that would just be contacting them. There's a really incredible organization called Rebel Health um, that has a program called Archangels that is all free, but it is it is getting organizations to acknowledge family caregivers and to take a pledge to support family caregivers. And I would, you know, I would contact them and um, and make a and 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 get an organization wide. Um, you know, pledge to to recognize this role because this is this is a big deal. Fifty four million people, um, one in four adults, taking care of somebody they love is huge. Um, and, Absolutely. And I think at the very least, we we recognize you know we recognize that they're there. Um, and and I can tell you from a very personal standpoint, you end up feeling quite invisible um, at times. Um, um, you know, there's a big gap between what physicians and healthcare organizations can do for patients and what the caregiver, which is frequently referred to as the sort of forgotten second patient, really mm -hmm. needs. Um, and so that's more of a that's more of a palliative care philosophy that says, let's take the whole, I, I think looking at the topic of narrative medicine, I think looking at the topic of slow medicine, um, I would, if I were a healthcare leader right now, I would read Jessica Zitter's book, which is called Extreme Measures. This is a physician who was a critical, who is a critical care physician, had been a career critical care physician, and at some point realized, you know what? you know, cracking the chest of, a, of an 86-year-old woman who's got end-stage ovarian cancer is not the way to go. And so she did fellowship in palliative care. And now she really successfully marries the fact that sometimes critical care is in, is in order and a lot of times palliative care is in order because, right? Because we live our lives and, 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 and then we complete them, you know? So um, she, she really is... Um, a pretty extraordinary uh, leader in this in this idea in medicine. This was a powerful interview with Jennifer O'Brien. The art journal she kept as a form of self-care during her late husband's 22-month illness was published in The Hospice Doctor's Widow, a journal. Quite the title if you think about it. Jennifer educates physicians, nurses, and other healthcare professionals about the role of family caregivers and the importance of end-of-life preparations for their own well-being and agency. I quote Ms. Bryan here, we live our lives and then we complete them. Beyond just caregivers, this podcast with concrete recommendations to physician leaders offers a good amount of intellectual capital for when it comes to end-of-life care and end-of-life planning. The podcast and the book are really a tutorial. O'Brien also talks about the concept of precious time and the value in planning for end-of-life care and end-of-life wishes, topics even that us as physicians tend to avoid. She also references useful resources for physician leaders, and those links are shown in the notes. Number 10, pivoting, tapping out, or trading up. Physicians transitioning to non-clinical careers. We've all seen those statistics on physician burnout. 
We all know of physicians that have changed course mid-career. We all know that there's a gig economy out there. Moving away from clinical practice is not something to be done lightly or without planning. Dr. Sylvie Stacy has written 50 non-clinical careers for physicians, fulfilling meaningful and lucrative alternatives to direct patient care. This episode of Sound Practice examined career options and motivations for change with Dr. Stacy. Dr. Stacy shares excellent questions a physician should ask him or herself before considering a significant career change. Listen to her sage advice before pulling the ripcord. Can you give me three questions that a physician should ask him or herself in preparing for a non-clinical career pathway? Yeah, uh, so for physicians considering a non-clinical job because of stress or burnout in their clinical jobs, one, one piece of advice that I often give is to avoid making a career change out of frustration. Uh, being exhausted and disengaged can really cloud our decision-making. So if you're in that situation, one question to ask yourself is, do you truly dislike patient care? Or do you just dislike your current clinical job? Or do you just dislike the type of patient care that you're doing or the setting in which you're doing it in? And if one of those latter situations applies, it may not be a non-clinical job that is going to satisfy you. It might just be a transition to a different type of clinical job. Um, and in fact, I could write an entire other book on the unconventional types of clinical careers that are available. So before anyone decides that they want to stop seeing patients entirely, I really think they should ask themselves if they truly are disliking patient care enough that they want to transition to non-clinical work. Another question uh, that applies more to both to physicians that are feeling frustrated and burned out and those that are pursuing non-clinical jobs for other more positive reasons is how non-clinical work align with your professional and personal goals. I think that each job change that we have in our careers needs to somehow move us toward the goals that we have or help us to further define them. And so asking yourself this question will help you select the right type of role to pursue, and it will also help you convey your interest in a job when you're applying and you're interviewing. And then a third question, I would say, ask yourself how, how do your clinical skills and other skills transfer to a non-clinical job? Uh, so a lot of physicians wishing to transition from clinical work feel like they're underqualified for all of the non-clinical opportunities that they come across because they don't have experience in that industry or they haven't done the, the particular type of responsibilities described for that position. Uh, but our clinical work relies on a lot of the same skills that are important for non-clinical jobs. Um, these include both soft skills such as communication and technical skills like um, quality improvement techniques or statistical analysis. So coming from clinical work, it's important to think broadly about your skills and how they might be applied to different types of responsibilities outside of an outpatient clinic or a hospital. And as with the previous question and asking yourself what your goals are, this can also really help you demonstrate to potential employers that you're a good fit for a physician. I routinely encourage physicians to continuously pursue deeper levels of personal and professional development throughout their career trajectory. So it was interesting when Sylvie Stacy contacted me about a book she was writing on non-clinical career choices for physicians. 
although that was back in 2019 and before the pandemic, at AEPL, we could see the general trends of physicians being interested in this topic of alternative careers separate from clinical life. By the time they realize their career in clinical medicine isn't everything they thought it would be, some physicians believe they're too invested in their trade to turn back. Feeling burned out, disengaged, unfulfilled, and unburdened by high student debt, or compensation incommensurate with the demands of their jobs, many may feel trapped, without options, and nowhere to go. We find that a number of our AAPL constituency members are looking for ways to leverage their clinical skills to transition to another career, sometimes even out of healthcare entirely. And that, again, was even before the COVID-19 pandemic. Some physicians are looking to extend their brand or to add that non-clinical side gig or an activity to their current work situation. I ended up writing the foreword to Dr. Stacy's book, and it's a great book. From my foreword, the layout of the book and its chapter design provide focus on the constellation of readily attainable full-time positions for all types of physicians. It is a must read for those trying to answer their personal question of whether to seek an alternative career way beyond bedside care. We hope you've enjoyed this episode that highlights 10 of our popular podcasts from the last 100. We continue to drop new episodes every other Wednesday, so we hope that you will subscribe to our podcast channel at soundpracticepodcast.com or wherever you access podcasts. Here's to the next 100 Sound Practice Podcasts from the American Association for Physician Leadership. Bada bing, bada bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin. Wouldn't go pow.